Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce Attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. Uh, delighted to welcome each of you to the part three on business immigration in the area, era of compliance and investigations. I'm honored to introduce to you two of my brilliant and learned colleagues from the Murthy Law Firm, Adam Rosen, who is an attorney and an assistant managing attorney at the firm, very brilliant and knowledgeable. In fact, we call him Mr. Regulations, uh, not just in our office, but in the immigration, thousands of immigration lawyers know him as that. And he's also a national speaker across the country on different topics, complex issues, including litigation and defending the government and compliance and issues like that. And Alyssa Klein, who's also uh, besides being a brilliant lawyer, a member of the Murthy Law Firm. So you can see you have three power brokers here, or at least two of them for sure, who are just rock, who are just totally knowledgeable about this area. So just to refresh your recollection, in part one, we discussed the issue of public access files. For part two, we went over the I-9 process. And now we are going to be discussing today the wage and hour issues with a special focus on how this applies to employers of H-1B workers. As an aside, I called this the final of the three-part series, but please remember that we will continue to have all of our regular monthly teleconferences for employers. And of course, we regularly write articles directed to help employers, directed at them on multi.com in our bulletins and otherwise. It's just the final of the three-part series specifically targeted to help employers when an investigator knocks at your door. So what is the first thing that we need to clarify? Adam, if I can start with you, what do we mean by wage and hour issues? So a lot of the issues that we're going to talk about are handled by the investigators that are part of a division in Department of Labor called the Wage and Hour Division. And basically, this is referencing the steps that employers have to take, the steps they have to avoid taking, to make sure that they are compliant with the various laws and regulations covering payment of wages to their employees. There are rules that cover all employees, but there are special requirements that come into play when you have H-1B workers specifically. Right. So you know, these uh, investigations, which are carried out by the Wage and Hour Division of the U.S. Department of Labor, um, they're generally triggered by a complaint by an employee or a former employee. The Department of Labor makes, Labor makes it very easy for workers to file a complaint against a company. Um, so it's important that, you know, all workers, including H-1B workers, are treated fairly. Um, and employers keep proper documentation to evidence the steps that have been taken uh, to remain compliant with all wage and hour requirements. So investigations can also be initiated based on a referral or a recommendation of another federal agency. For example, USCIS's fraud detection and national security officers are responsible for conducting random site visits to companies that employ H-1B and or L-1 workers. 
and if during the site visit the officer comes to learn any negative information about the employer or sees anything that seems suspicious, the officer could refer the case to wage an hour or to uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement for further investigation. Interesting. And so, by the way, uh, you know, this past April, the USCIS announced that it would be targeting um, these unannounced site visits on companies that are H-1B dependent or those who place workers off-site. So if you, as an employer, fall into either of these two categories, and that's a lot of, obviously, consulting companies, almost all of them, then the vast majority of technology consulting companies uh, really need to make sure that you are prepared for a potential site visit because they've hired so many extra officers, they just need to keep them busy. And so I hope we're very excited about how our tax money is being used. So the question that I'm sure everybody is thinking about is what is the wage that employers must pay an H-1B worker? They have to be paid what is known as the required wage. Now, the required wage is either the actual wage or the prevailing wage, whichever is higher. The prevailing wage is the wage that's set based on a review of the job description, the area of intended employment where this person is going to actually do their job, and the minimum hiring requirements for the position. So in practice, this is usually the wage that's being obtained from the Foreign Labor Certification Data Center that's online that has the OES wage survey from Department of Labor. Now, the actual wage, on the other hand, is what an employer pays other people with similar experience and qualifications for that job in that geographic area. Right. And I think we should, it's worth going back to the uh, Foreign Labor Certification Data Center because the wage data in, in online um, has different levels for, for the positions, um, with a level one wage being an entry level wage and going up one, two, three, and four. Now, it's important that when you're identifying the level wage that you're setting the prevailing wage, the wage paid must be for the correct level of, of the position. Um, there's an administrative law judge decision from several years ago uh, where the employer was routinely classifying its workers as being in level one positions to save money. Uh, and after the investigation, the government determined that many of those of these were actually level two positions. So the company was ultimately forced to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in back wages at the level two wage. Okay. So also, if you recall from our discussion a couple of weeks ago regarding public access files, you really need to maintain documentation that shows how the actual wage and the prevailing wage were established. So Adam, if I can ask you, what counts as payments of the required wage? For example, can an employer just factor in certain benefits? Because a lot of companies say, well, I'm paying for my employees to stay in a free house, or several of them are sharing, or we give them a free meal, what have you. Can we do that? So not everything works. Only the, the cash paid free and clear to an employee counts towards meeting the required wage. Any money like a per diem payment or advances that were not reported to the IRS in computing actual wages are not going to count as part of the required wage and aren't going to help an employer meet its obligation to the Department of Labor. Similarly, benefits such as health care and retirement savings can't be factored in to meeting the required wage under the um, H-1B rules. Right. And, you know, bonuses is another 
type of benefit that employers often wonder, can we go ahead and, and add bonuses and can we use that? Now, bonuses can be can be used as part of the required wage, but only if they're for guaranteed amounts. So, for example, if a bonus is only going to be paid based on you know, some possible event that that's not predetermined, such as hitting a certain profit or profit target or sales target, um, or if the amount is contingent on something that may or may not actually end up happening, this would not count towards meeting the required wage amount. Well, that defies the term bonus. Bonus generally means it's based on something, but sometimes they do give like a percentage, like 1%, 2% of your base salary, right. assuming almost everything works out. But even there, they save the company's profit, which is why I think it's hard to use yeah. bonuses. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if somebody joins and they get a maybe a sign-on bonus, that's something that could be looked into, provided that they're actually given it at you know at the time of joining right so if it's there in that sense yes. the the bonus the sign on bonus is something that's guaranteed Correct. and that's generally going to be the guiding post that department of labor takes but anything's anything other than the actual wages that are paid in the normal course of a company paying the salary wages to its worker is going to be something that you as an employer are going to have to you know, make an argument to the officer that comes and asks questions about, I'm looking at this person's pay stubs, I'm looking at this person's W-2, because they do look at both. Right. Um, and the, uh, the officer is going to say, the wage requirement hasn't been met. As an employer, the company is going to have to make an argument. And maybe the agent agrees. Maybe they don't. The other thing, too, is it's ongoing for the whole duration of the H-1B employment. So Yes. Correct. Yeah. And it's interesting that you said that it makes absolutely no difference even if the H-1B worker agrees to accept the lower wage because it's what the Department of Labor determines to be the higher of the actual Correct. wage or the prevailing wage. Okay, so Adam, if I can jump back to you, what deductions are legally permissible from the wages which are paid to H-1B workers? So there are certain deductions that are authorized, and, and that phrase is something that pops up in the law a lot, and that is in the DOL field handbook that the officers use, this phrase of authorized deductions. And that's what can be taken from the wages that you're paying to your H-1B worker. Now, even and this is even if these deductions will drop the worker's salary below the required wage. And it is necessary in order to be able to show that they're authorized. So examples might include those things that are required by law, that an employer has to deduct taxes, FICA, um, Medicare, those kinds of taxes that have to be taken out from the salary. Those are authorized, and though even if it drops the worker's salary below the required wage, you're still a company is still meeting its wage requirement. Uh, deductions that might be permitted as part of a collective bargaining agreement with the union. Uh, deductions that might ordinarily be taken out of another worker's salary that is employed in a similar situation to this H-1B worker, such, so U.S. workers that we're talking about, and they are revealed to the H-1B worker, to the workers, before starting employment with a company. So probably the best example of this would be a deduction that's made for health insurance. So as part of the onboarding process, um, even when perhaps somebody's just made, accepted the offer or being told about the offer of employment, one of the things they're told about is that we, do, we take this part of the process of providing you with health insurance is that there is this deduction that's made from your salary. Okay. And so what are the examples then, uh, Alyssa, of what is not permitted to be recouped as an employer business expense? Right. So generally... Um, it is not permissible for employers to recoup business expenses that would include 
things like attorney costs or fees connected to the uh, H-1B program, okay, in general. Um, but, you know, it's worth noting that, you know, by law, some of the costs of the H-1B petition must be paid by the employer, such as the $500 fraud potential protect preventing and, and detection fee, um, and the employer is specifically prohibited from recouping this fee from the employee in any way, shape, or form. And so that's one of the things is, you know, the Department of Labor generally takes the position that every fee connected with an H-1 has to be paid 100% by the employer because it's the employer's ordinary business expense. However, because the statute itself, when it talks about the fraud prevention and detection fee, mentions that 500 as mandatorily has to be paid by the employer, some creative employers and attorneys say, okay, some of these fees, it's 100% clear under the statute. Others, it's silent, even though Department of Labor says everything must come from the employer. So, you know, let's do this. So you have to understand that if there's a DOL audit, you as an employer could be subject or subject to penalties because the Department of Labor takes an even more conservative and strict position than does USCIS. So, as we said, the regulations do not specifically prevent an H-1B worker, for example, from paying the petition fee, which is currently, whatever, $460. Yet, uh, as I just said, to be really, really safe, it is recommended that you pay that fee and not try to seek reimbursement from the employee, especially if there is a DOL audit. So a good example of a fee, I think, Shayla, that is probably one of the stronger arguments that an employer would have to have the employee pay is premium processing fee. Because you don't need it, especially with the H-1B portability, if you have somebody who is you know, already working for you and let's say the company is going to file an amended petition or the person's it's a change of employer and they're filing the petition to join them under H-1B portability, that worker can start once the receipt is issued. They don't need to have an approval. The worker may prefer it. And so in that situation, there's probably a stronger argument for the employer to say, you know what, if the employee wants premium processing, then he or she can pay for the premium processing fee. I don't need it for them to start. It's not required by law. It's not required by me. When they get the receipt, I can complete the I-9 form and start them start them working. So in that situation, if the employee is paying the premium processing fee, as long as the employer can you know, document that this is the reason why, that it's not for their business need, it's because the employee wanted it, then that would be something and that would be a way to defend against the Department of Labor saying, hey, premium processing fee, you should have paid it too. Yeah, I think it's a good argument, but we have seen over and over, again, at different conferences and different meetings we've had with Department of Labor, they have said even the premium processing, everything should belong to the employer. But Adam's point is excellent that should there be an investigation, you can say, hey, I didn't want it, I didn't need it, my employee was allowed to work 240 days or about eight months without that, why should I have to pay that extra expense? And if they wanted to gain peace of mind, then that's their problem as spouses and children and other travel expenses, visas stamp at consulates abroad. All of those are generally considered the employee's personal private expenses. And I think think the the lesson of of this whole issue is the fact that if it's it's something that you're going to have to argue out, that, you know, that means that there's an investigation, there's findings. It's something that would have to be contested in front of a Department of Labor administrative law judge. So that's a a balance, a decision that a company has to make and what they're going to do in the costs and the, the cost and benefits. 
Right. And as we had sort of talked before, even if the person's pay slips indicate that the H-1B employee is being paid the required wage, any costs which are related to the H-1B process that are paid for by the worker could be viewed by the Department of Labor as a deduction from the wages from what is required as a minimum required wage, potentially thereby reducing them and making it below the required wage and then sort of slapping penalties against the employer. A lot of nuances here, but we're seeing this over and over, at least in every meeting and in every Department of Labor discussion, they keep coming back and harping on this point. So let's next jump to a very important question that is often asked. Adam, if I can come back to you, what are the rules relating to benching of the H-1 workers? So there's a long answer and a short answer. The short answer is that an employer should not bench an H-1B worker. It is, it is a no-no. That's it. The important thing to keep in mind, though, is that paying wages to a worker does meet the LCA requirement that an H-1B employer has towards their worker. However, it does not mean that the person is maintaining status. So it is important that even in the context of talking about these wage and hour issues that an employer needs to remember that it has to deal with compliance towards rules, rules set both by Department of Labor and USCIS. And USCIS does not want to know and hear that there is an employer that has told them that there is specialty occupation work but that this worker is benched and not doing any of that work. Okay, thank you, Adam. Um, also, it's very important not to withhold payment and promise to make up the unpaid wages later once you know you get a contract or work is found because the Department of Labor requires that employees have to be paid uh, their wages either weekly, bi-weekly, once in 15 days, uh, or minimum once a month at m once a month. There are actually a few situations where it is okay to not pay the H-1B worker, though. Um, for instance, if an H-1B an worker is entitled to take leave of absence under the FMLA, Family Medical Leave Act, to the same extent as other workers. So if a worker takes unpaid maternity leave, for example, under the FMLA, the employer is not generally obligated to pay the worker's wages for that time. But bear in mind, you know, this, this is not just an immigration issue, it's an employment law issue as well. So a, an employer must make sure that they are, in addition to being compliant with you know, the LCA requirements, the H-1B requirements, that they're also compliant with state and federal employment law. Exactly. So that's why that the, the FMLA, for example, is exempt because you have to allow a person the time off and some of it or all of it, depending on the company's policy, could potentially be unpaid FMLA leave. Uh, and then a truly voluntary leave of absence also does not have to be paid. So, for instance, if the worker, even if your company is not protected or covered by the, uh, depending on your size, by the FMLA law, if the worker does not have any vacation time but requests time off and is granted a voluntary leave uh, to travel abroad, for example, for a wedding or a funeral or any personal matter, then in those situations, uh, the employer is not obligated or required to pay the salary, but the employer should keep documentation on hand to prove and show that this was purely voluntary because the last thing you want is the employee coming back and saying, no, my employer made me sign this when it wasn't true. Uh, but yes, this is a loophole and we know that people sometimes can abuse it, but you have to be very careful because an employee could easily turn against the employer and give you a hard time. Especially when you have an investigation that's conducted, Sheila, because of a complaint. The wage and hour agents do go out and interview workers 
to get information from them. And sometimes the information is accurate and sometimes the information is inaccurate. And sometimes it's just misunderstood. But uh, for that reason, it is important important for an employer to have a consistent policy that is applied across the board. Um, right. And, and, you know, as we previously mentioned, um, you don't have to pay the, the H-1B worker if you end up in a situation where the employment's been terminated. Um, but in order to fully relieve yourself of the wage obligations, uh, the employer must make what's called a bona fide termination. Uh, and there are three steps that an employer needs to make for a bona fide termination when they, when they are terminating the employment of the worker. Um, one is that you must notify the worker, okay? So you want to have documentation of this, so we recommend having the notice in writing so that there's proper documentation of the notice. Uh, you have to notify USCIS of the termination, and typically that takes the form of the uh, withdrawal letter that's sent into USCIS. Uh, and in the case of a termination as opposed to a resignation, uh, the employer needs to offer the H-1B worker return cost, reasonable cost for return trip uh, home or country of last residence. Again, you need to document this. The H-1B worker can either choose to accept the offer or not, but again, you want to have that in writing. Okay. So it is it is important, um, and, and oftentimes we run into situations where we hear um, a company may or an employee isn't sure what to do, and whether you know maybe there is a company that is not um, complying with the law as carefully as it should. Um, it is important that if a company doesn't have work for an H-1B employee to perform, that the company is not pressuring that worker to um, into taking a quote-unquote voluntary leave of absence. If a leave of absence is based on a company not having work for the employee to perform, then that leave is not voluntary, and there is still a wage obligation. And if this um, is found out by the Department of Labor, by USCIS, by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, um, any of the various government agencies involved in enforcing the immigration laws, that could mean serious problems, um, civil, potentially even criminal penalties for, um, for the employer involved. Yeah, I know I hate to sound like doom and gloom, but everything we're sharing with you is based on the the statute, which is the law, the regulations, and by discussions and with discussions with senior U.S. Department of Labor officials when we meet with them during conferences and other meetings when we as lawyers speak from the Murthy Law Firm at different national and international conferences, uh, local, regional, or national conferences where we actually analyze and discuss with them and we try to negotiate and sometimes they really dig in their heels. So the position, the overall position is obviously be very careful and conservative in this political climate. With everything going on, we want to be sure that as an employer and as a business and as an individual, that you are not considered to have violated the law. And if you have broken a law and violated it, that's bad enough. But trying to cover it up can lead to criminal penalties and criminal investigations. So I tell people, don't make a bad situation into a worse situation by trying to cover up things, as we're hearing about that happens all the time. And... Uh, Obviously, at the Murthy Law Firm, we do have a lot of experience with whether it's FDNS agents knocking on your door, Department of Labor audits, penalties, fines, uh, you know, whatever, uh, in negotiating for you and discussing and trying to make things work. Uh, and it'll be an honor and pleasure to help you, but hopefully we're not helping you when you are in a crisis because you're doing all of the things correctly in advance so we don't have to get to that 
funny place of you becoming desperate and having to spend more money rather than doing it much less expensively when you are in a relaxed frame of mind and dotting your I's and crossing your T's. So on behalf of everyone here at the Murthy Law Firm, Adam Rosen, Alyssa Klein, and myself, Sheila Murthy, we want to thank you for joining us today on this wage and hour issue discussion. And we hope that we have shed some light so that you can actually be careful and do things correctly. And uh, we look forward to continuing to take great care of you. Have a great afternoon. Thank you.